All right, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everyone. I'm extremely grateful, humbled, and honored that we are joined today by the one and only Dr. Mark J. Rose uh, to give a quick a quick background introduction uh, about Mr. Rose before we introduce him. Mark is a scientist, author, and adventurer. He holds a doctorate in pharmaceutical chemistry and is a director of research and development at a major biotech company. Fascinated with how humans adapt in a rapidly changing world, his writing resides at the intersection of technology, science, and society. Rose is the author of the highly acclaimed Matt Miller in the Colony series, which is available on Amazon and Audible. And the fourth book, titled Architect, is the latest and releases February, uh, had just uh, released uh, last month. Uh, Mark resides in La, La Jolla or La Jolla, forgive me. Uh, La Jolla. La Jolla, sorry, thank La Jolla. you so much. Yes. With his wife, Wendy, and a sheep-a-doodle named Misha. Um, yeah. that likes to take long walks on the beach. And you can find more on Mark's website, of which I will put in the description of this video. So without further ado, sir, um, thank you so very much for coming on. And how are you today? I'm great, Dave. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I would love to give you the floor to sort of uh, provide, a, I guess you could say, a bit of a, a background to myself and, and to my audience about where your interests lie in all of that, if that's all right. And then we can dive into um, some of the uh, the topics of discussion. Oh, sure. Um, so I am the author of the Matt Miller and the Colony series. There are four books in the series. Uh, the series started out to be kind of very uh, practical. Uh, I, I think uh, I was interested in uh, really fish out of water kinds of stories and technology. Uh, I've always been interested uh, ever since I was a small child, as a matter of fact, of how things work. And then as kind of we move into this world, I, I look around and realize that we don't have any idea of how some of the things that uh, we use every day. We have no idea how to reproduce them. Do you, do you even really know? You, you plug your iPhone in every night. Do you really know how where that electricity comes from? Okay, and if that electricity stopped, what would you do? You know, we know it's uh, coal-fired, and we know it's maybe nuclear power or some <laughs> <Right>. solar. <laughs> you know, right. but really, we we have no idea. Um, I grew up working on cars, um, so now I, I open up the hood of my car now. I have no idea how to fix it. After all those years I spent working on cars, they become so technologically advanced. And so that's where the, the, the idea of the Matt Miller in the Colony series came from. I wanted to take a scientist that knew as much as there was to know about a particular field. In this case, this guy knows how to make drugs in a big pharma but he relies on all these other people. And what I wanted to do is put him into a situation where he didn't have any of the modern modern conveniences and would he be able to survive? You know, would he be able to remember how to make the simplest of medicines? Would he be able to contribute to society? And it started off that way. Uh, and I had to figure out a way to get that person into this time where he wouldn't have any of these modern conveniences and test his intelligence. But then after a while, the book became not just that scenario, but also thinking about time travel, thinking about the quantum world, thinking about human consciousness. And the last two books not only are historical fiction time travel, but they're also kind of looking into things that I think the more that I 
dwell into or dwell into human consciousness and the universe and all these things, suddenly it becomes all interconnected. And, and, and it, it becomes a little more of an exploration of that. Uh, but I don't want to say that that's all it is because there's still an underlying story there and there's a hero and he's making his way through the world. And that's Matt Miller. Well, l let me just say that as I'm, th that's incredible. So I, I would love to get your opinion on the perhaps, and tell me if I'm use giving a bit of personal confirmation bias here, but the closed-mindedness in your field in particular, or in, in the field of academia in general, this idea that I find, at least in my line of work uh, with uh, physics and things like propulsion and what have you, there seems to be an agreement when it comes to running numbers on paper, but when it comes to then applying it into a practical manner, some of those uh, applicatory concepts seem to be too we could say, quote unquote, out there for certain scientists. So it's like they have no problem with running the numbers on paper. But the second you try and propose something that they deem to be too esoteric or out there, they begin to sort of laugh and dismiss it immediately. Do you find that to be the case in, in your line of work as well? Well, uh, what do I want to say about this? Uh, I, I got recently criticized for my fourth book that I was bashing atheists. And that's entirely not true. I'm not bashing atheists in my fourth book. I'm just saying that there's more to what we can see. Uh, there is a quantum world that underlies everything in your brain. And I'm a neuroscientist. Your brain protects you from the energetic fields that are all around you. And you know they're there. You have dreams. You have premonitions. You have all these kind of things that we talk about that we've been talking about since, since human history began. And if we start to dwell into the quantum world, suddenly that's an interface where things aren't tangible, where miracles happen. Okay. And so there's more to what we can confirm with what we can touch, what, with what you touch is an illusion. Okay. And as we understand more about quantum physics, there's, there, there's a whole bunch of other things out there that we're just starting to figure out. So and can I... If I'm sorry to cut you off, but the, have you looked into the work, for example, of uh, Dr. Carl Friston, specifically active inference? Uh, no, I have not. Okay, th this idea that there's this sort of underlying substrate that, it, for lack of a better term, is sort of um, acts as a, as a, we could say... Dare I say this carefully, but sort of a holographic blueprint, if you will. And if that blueprint can be accessed, um, this would be what we would call the quantum scale, the Planck scale, whatever you like to call it. Uh, we can maybe perhaps even argue with the utmost respect to my religious friends, this may be what the Holy Spirit was. I'm just speculating here. Um, this idea that something non-tangible can come into tangibility. Uh, via thought, intention, and things like this. Do you find that, uh, do you find any of that to be the case in your research or line of work? Well, I mean, so that was kind of, again, I, I'm dealing with a, a man who is traveling through time. And the universal question of time travel has always been, can you change history by going back, or can you change the future by going back in time? And changing the course of events and what do they call that the butterfly effect and that's a that's a, a sort of a micro question to a bigger picture of of causality and having uh an infinite number of possible futures uh from what i understand 
Okay, and so there's more there than just one timeline. There's multiple timelines and they're all happening at the same time as far as I get it. And then suddenly tra time travel feels very possible. And right. so does changing multiple histories. Uh, there's some work by uh, John Wheeler. Um, I think he's, he's dead now, but you know, he was doing um, sort of incredible experiments with, with light. And his, his experiments have been confirmed a number of times where if you observe a particle of light, it will act differently. And it's not because of the experimental interaction. And I used to think when I first learned about this, I'm like, oh, that's because they're observing it somehow and they're introducing some kind of perturbation. It's not true. So human consciousness is able to influence what light does as it travels. And it kind of, it's, it's just a simple experiment to, you know, a whole other world out there, again, that your brain has to protect you from. But there's more there. There's God there. There's, there's, there's quantum physics there. There's the, the role of human consciousness. And I think we're only starting to get into a little bit of this. And we only understand it. And it's some of it might be a little too scary for us, right? Because again, I think that your brain is designed to protect you from a lot of it. And would, would you be some, a, go oh, ahead? I, well, I was just gonna ask, would, would you be of the opinion, uh, doctor, that the perhaps uh, the and please tell me if you think this is a, a rather incoherent way of viewing this, um, that the brain is not so much uh, interpreting as much as it is perhaps coping and protecting. Oh, no, I 100% I, I agree with that. And I, I start to look at mental illness and start to wonder if this isn't something that's physically depression. Right. Uh, mm. So finally, I, I can't remember who the scientist's name is, but the, one of the main researchers on Prozac, he was walking around for a decade saying, well, depression is a chemical imbalance in your brain. Right. And, I, and I'm thinking that that it may or may not be, but it's the interface that your brain has with the world around you. Right. Your brain either protects you from it or it lets you have a little piece of it. And, and when that process goes wrong, you start to see things like schizophrenia. You start to see things like depression. Uh, and and it, it may be the interface. It may not be you know, a chemical imbalance. So uh, could would the chemical is, let's just say hypothetically uh, for the sake of conversation there let's just give him the benefit of the doubt that there may there would be a chemical imbalance or a decrease in serotonin or something like this I wonder if even giving in a hypothetical conversation giving uh, the the benefit of the doubt to these people that claim such I wonder if the chemical imbalance is just one side of the coin it is the result of perhaps a transitory or facilitative medium that is occurring non-locally would you I, I think I, I entirely agree I entirely okay. agree right um and we can start talking about also you know again as I've explored neuroscience and we've done experiments for 30 years uh, about human rec uh, human recall uh where, where where are memories stored and, and, and the amazing things is, is when they do brain surgery, you have to be conscious. And, and they've done experiments while brain surgery is taking place. And what happens is if you stimulate certain areas of your brain, you not you re-experience situations. And you don't just remember a little bit. You remember everything. You remember smells. All of this is being logged someplace, right? How can a lifetime of experiences be logged in something as small as your brain? 
Well, this actually brings me to my next question. I appreciate what you said there. You, get, you gave a beautiful transition, in my opinion, to the concept of what you discuss regarding the universal mind. Um, this concept that, for example, if I'm if I can recall this correctly, or excuse me, the universal cloud, where we don't keep memories in our brains, and why memories may be stored someplace else. This speaks to the idea of some have proposed in the past that, dare I say, the arbitrary definition of consciousness, quote unquote, reaches in through quantum processes uh, externally, similar to how Roger Penrose has stated that it is of his opinion that consciousness is non-computational and he can't state what it is so much as what it isn't. W would you liken your, uh, your, your work and your research and your personal opinion to any of that? Uh, for sure. A hundred percent. Right. And I, I, I no longer believe that memories are stored in your brain. I, and I believe that that things like Alzheimer's, where right. we lose our ability to recall, aren't our ability to recall what's in our brain. I think we're losing that conscious, the, our, our brain connection to the memory stored someplace else. And, and you, you're going to have to look to the quantum world, um, this underlying everything that surrounds us, that our brain has access to, that our brain protects us from. Okay, if we have too much access to it, we have schizophrenia. We have something that drives us mad. Okay, we have too little access to it. I think that you know we 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 don't have that spark. Uh, and then if it goes wrong, we're we're not we're not we're not able to remember where we are on the path that we're following. And that's kind of where I see it. I'm I'm in full agreement. And if I may ask, perhaps a bit more of a personal question, if I may. What inspired you or motivated you to begin to, uh, whether intuitively or heuristically, see, feel, and or experience a lot of what you now believe? And I ask this in a purely positive manner because I'm in strong agreement with everything that you've written and said. What do I want to say? I, I think uh, it initially started out as figuring out art figuring out music and, and sitting in, in a rock concert and feeling something that's happening and wondering and looking at, looking up at those people and wondering how can they reach all these people and make a connection to all these people? Do they have a deeper connection that's more than just something that's internal to them? And I started to think about that force. You know, when you go to a museum, and you're, you're you're kind of there and you're looking and you're there's all these people looking at the at the paintings and they're all kind of wondering what what's you, know, you look around and you go what what the hell are they all staring at you know what why why does it even matter and why do you have to be in the face of that painting why why not just look at it on your computer there's there's all sorts of kind of reasons and you're like something else is going on here you know, and people kind of write it off and they say, well, it's because, you know, it's the experience or whatever. Well, that's not good enough for a scientist. That right. is not. Right. <laughs> wow. Well, that's I I couldn't agree more. And speaking of which, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there is something I'd love to touch upon uh, regarding the historical accuracy uh, regarding researching places and times to then create plausible fictional narratives. What have you come to, uh, I guess, understand about a lot of that um, in terms of perhaps the altering of certain historical events to suit a more modern narrative uh, to then perhaps even uh, potentially suppress any academic, uh, we could say, 
uh, inquiries into into a lot of the things that that you and I both subscribe to? Well, I don't know if it's you know I, I don't know about suppression, but what I what I try yeah. to do what I try to do in my books is everything is historically accurate, um, and and so I build a puzzle and I build a world around I build a world around people and events that I know happens based on historical recollection. And so if a character comes through, if if my character, Matt Miller, if he starts talking to somebody in Philadelphia that we all know, um, that person was there at the time. Uh, and then I start to, it, it, then it starts to become a, a story in itself. And you, you know, you can start thinking about, you know, what really is fiction, you know, is fiction real or not? Um, you know, it's, it's in your head. And I've had people ask me this before, you know, I, I'm reading a book and, you know, what do you think that is? Is, is that really happening in my mind is, or is it just something of our, an imagination, you know, and it starts to become this interaction. Uh, what I have, have seen though, is some of the early decisions that I made, not thinking about what the fourth book would be connect. And I'm like, how the hell did that happen? Right? How, how, did, how did I make that decision way back when? And suddenly, oh, it all makes so much sense. And it, well, it could be in your mind or, you know, it could have all been a story that was already written somewhere. And, uh, you know, again, we're getting into kind of very mystical, unexplainable things right now. So but if there. I well, if I may say, actually, as a matter of fact, I'm very much in support of that, particularly because there's this idea that I've been toying with that I've brought up to my my members on, on my Patreon uh, pertaining to this idea of perhaps what we call imagination may, in fact, be an alternate outcome of a particular chain of events or something like this that is not we have not experienced locally here. Well, all right. You know, and so right. again, back to the question, is fiction real? Right. You know, right. Is, is Shakespeare real? You know, you read Hamlet, you know, right. a story that's transcended uh, through centuries. Is it real or not? Well, you know, are numbers real? Right. Mm, right. right. Well, I don't know. We now, you know, we're now we're realizing we're, with quantum physics that there's different types of we could call what are called base mathematics. So. Right. Yeah, to your point, I th that's a very, very peculiar uh, concept to have because the idea then becomes, well, with respects to if we go to the very core grounds, if there is a ground state layer of this reality, if nothing is quote unquote real, as if I may quote Dr. Niels Bohr over 100 years ago, and I'm just uh, off the top of my head, he had said, if one doesn't realize that everything we call real are made up of things that are inherently are not real at all, then yeah. one has not fully understood quantum theory yet. And those were his words. Well, no, I, I, I understand because I mean, these guys were arguing, uh, they, they were arguing what reality was back then. And I, I think this is the one time when Einstein may have gotten it wrong. Right. He was right. looking for it. I, he didn't get much wrong. He really didn't. But this was the one time that he lost the argument. Right. You know, what, what reality was. And, you know, because he was still looking for a tangible, measurable thing. And, you know, you need your brain to measure that tangible, measurable thing, and maybe your brain's protecting you from it. And that's, I'll just stop right there. Right. Now, speaking of, of the concept of the brain and, and, the, and as we've touched upon different chemicals and their inter interactions and such, I'd love to get your perspective on psychedelics. And perhaps if there were to be, um, and I say this carefully, uh, more so for myself and to the audience, I'm not trying to uh, in recommend nor 
uh, unrecommend any psychedelics, but are there any that perhaps you have found to be, uh, whether personally or from your career or from writing with your book, um, more, dare I say, uh, potent or effective with respects to a uh, spiritual and uh, relaxing approach to uh, to certain things, say, for example, ayahuasca compared to DMT or something of the sort? I, what, what, what can I say about this? Um, I'm very fascinated with psychedelics. And I think that there's something real there. Uh, I became fascinated with psychedelics early on, listening to stories about how artists accessed their creativity after an experience with psychedelics. Right. Uh, and then the other interesting thing about psychedelics is they aren't addictive. Uh, psychedelics, usually what happens with psychedelics is artists go through a period where they experiment and then they're done. Right. You know, like, I, I've, I've obtained enough here. Uh, there's a shamanic tradition uh, across all uh, cultures. And so all cultures have kind of you know, moved into some degree of mind altering something and not just psychedelics, right? Uh, people do it through meditation. Right. Um, I talked to a, uh, as part of my research for my book, I talked to a self-proclaimed witch and she right. practiced, was it Wicca? I can't remember, but she, sure. Uh, I, over a series of meetings, we, we talked about her experience with meditation Mm. And then how eventually what started to happen is she she received a psychedelic experience and she was able to see things that that, that scared her. Right. And I think that that's where psychedelics are. Uh, you have to be very careful with psychedelics. Uh, there are places where, you know, they're what they're legal in Oregon now. And eventually there's going to be something um, I I can't really say how much I know about psychedelics. Uh, but no problem. I would say I would say you don't lightly experiment with them. Right. You don't. And right. so if if you you just don't there, there's there's a whole the shamanic tradition is a whole lifestyle, right? It's people preparing for this journey. And somebody once told me, be careful of money you haven't earned. Be careful of information you haven't earned. And so you have to be very careful of uh, a deeper understanding. And I, I think that that's as far as I want to go. Right? Sure. No, no problem. I, I appreciate that immensely. That's a incredible insight, by the way. And I will say as well for the audience that I've, I've taken it multi different psychedelics myself multiple times, not to be fair, not recently, but last year, um, I even went as far as to uh, try and, uh, I guess you could say, uh, at this point I was very comfortable with taking them, but I was, uh, I did a live stream, uh, on, on, uh, mushrooms, okay. uh, magic mushrooms. So it was, a, it was a fun time and, um, certainly very enlightening for me in many regards. Um, Just, yeah, you, you don't yeah. want to get lost. I, I got another caution. Uh, right. you, don't, you don't want to get lost in the universe. You don't. Right. And right. your brain protects you from this. And I would say it can be a very scary experience. And I will. I'll leave I will. Sure, yes. And I will tell you uh, to, to sort of put the icing on the cake that I am in full agreement with yourself when you say that um, there are individuals that have had sort of a, I guess you could say a, a phase with them and they've been very content with that experience and they're happy to not revisit because they've received enough of what they got from yeah. those. And that I can, I will say personally that I can liken myself to that um, as well. But I, I did want to ask with respects to, uh, for example, um, 
visiting Ben Franklin's house in London and, and things like this, uh, do you find that whether it's uh, when traveling uh, for the book or for even just as a neuroscientist, do you find that the vibration of an environment seems to perhaps induce an effect in the brain slash mind that would give some type of, um, uh, dare I say, information that can only be obtained by being there in person rather no, than... And I'm yeah. going to go back to the same thing. Let's use an example. And I, I, you know, you could say, well, that's just something you felt or that's what sure. you know, or whatever. But why do you have to go look at the painting? Why do you have to be in the presence of the statue of David to really appreciate it when you have a high definition screen on your television? Right. Is there something tangible about that? Mm. And people will make up all sorts of reasons. You have to see the painting. You have to be, are, are there, is there something ethereal that's remains from the artist in that painting? Do you have to be at the rock concert to really experience it? Do you have to be at the back? I'm a basketball fan. There's right. nothing like being there in the crowd during a, a college basketball game and hearing the swish of a ball in a basket, in, in a basket, Right. Right. I don't know why. You tell me. But so then now we go back to the topic of should you go in and experience some of the places where things happen? And I would say it's benefited me. R wow. And, okay. So now that same yeah. way, that same way that you need to be at the rock concert to really. Uh, right. So when 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 you had said to add to, or to add to that or to to springboard off of that with respect to this concept of what you had said when people say, oh, well, that's just something you felt. I've been toying with this idea lately that this concept of whether we call it intuition, spirituality, feeling, you name it, perhaps may have been sort of a, an entire category that is not, um, dare I say, perhaps recently it's a little bit different in the public light of being taken more seriously, but not taken seriously for the last multiple decades. And I could be wrong about that, but this idea of there comes a point where someone gets scoffed at for trying to take a more intuitive approach to something when really we can we define in neuroscience by chance uh what intuition means or entails and i i don't mean to make that a trick question i'm just curious in your field the fact that you're still asking the question is proof that there's something tangible tangible about it i believe strongly in evolution mm. strongly we we don't do your your you don't do things that require energy or things that that continue the species without there being some evolutionary advantage mm. and so the fact that we still do things where we talk about you know i have a feeling uh deja vu we talk about deja vu all the time i, I feel like i've experienced this before and then we kind of write it off and we say, well, there's, you know, there's no reason for that. It's just your imagination. Right. What the hell? That's not a scientific explanation. We all go through it. Right. Are, are, are we reliving? Did, did we actually have a problem with psychedelics, for instance? Right. What happens with psychedelics is you relive, you, you relive the same time multiple times. And I, I, I didn't say that the right way. Like fractals, you kind of. Yeah, you relive the experience, and it seems like time, time stops, mm, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, what if you're actually losing your connection to the timeline that you're on, and you're you're, you're skipping back, and you have to start all over again, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and so all these kinds of things, and now suddenly a premonition 
takes on a whole different meaning. You know, what if actually you did skip back or skipped forward? Okay. And your brain corrected it. And, mm. and so you're like, you, maybe you have lived that experience before. Right. Now, <laughs> now with, with that said, are, are you of the opinion that this is something perhaps that, um, artificial intelligence cannot and will not be able to have um yeah, i don't I'm not, I'm not worried about artificial intelligence anymore i used to be scared to death of it you know because what we found again a strong believer in evolution right and the right. smartest species is always the dominant species mm, right and the smartest species always overwhelms the, the 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 less than less intelligent species eventually if we create these super powerful robots or this intelligence it'll eventually take over the earth and do its best for us. And if what's best for us is to, you know, make sure people don't destroy the planet, it'll eliminate people, right? It, all right. sorts of scenarios that you can possibly think of. I, I'm no longer of that, that, that mindset. I, I don't think that we're ever going to be able to create something that will be equivalent to the human brain. I, it's just because it's going to take a human brain to do it and, we're, we're just we just don't have the capability of it. would you be of the opinion perhaps that the what's lacking from that is the for lack of a better description the human intuition soul spirit the human we could call a some people have called it a quanta matrix we other different words for the same concept in a energetic manner would that be your opinion as to why yeah we can't right now we can't re reproduce the interface Mm. There, there, there's an inner for me anyway there, there's right. an interface there's multiple timelines right the quantum physics says that that particles are in an infinite number of places until uh, our, the conscious observation collapses the wave right yeah Re try to reproduce that with a microchip i i, I don't i don't <laughs> see it right and I, I think your brain is on this interface and we don't quite understand it and again we need a brain to understand the brain and i think this is where we've had I've been in neuroscience now for, oh, geez, 30 years, maybe. We yeah. haven't really cured one, one disease. We haven't cured Alzheimer's. We haven't cured Parkinson's. We haven't cured depression. We haven't cured anxiety. We dealt them. We, we, right. we have pharmaceuticals that kind of help you get through. Right. You cure it yourself. Right. You have to go for, for antidepressants. They, they don't just recommend the antidepressant. They're like, you have to have the antidepressant. Then you have mm -hmm. to have therapy and you have to cure yourself. I think that this is, yeah, we don't understand the brain. And, and I, I start to wonder why we're having so much trouble, you know, curing these brain diseases. And there's something there. And I, that's as far as I want to go. I'm not giving a very good scientific explanation. Oh, no, no. That's, I, I think it's fantastic, actually, because I, to your point, I think the, it, there comes a point where, if one considers for a moment a non-material aspect of anything in in the field of science, regardless of the the subfield or what have you, respectively, you begin to realize that there's a whole other side of that coin potentially that could then be, in a good way, perturbed to then, uh, whether via intuition or otherwise, to then resolve a lot of these is issues. Which takes me to my next question: of Do you um, and it doesn't have to be labeled in this way. This is just the way that I label it, but. Do you find there to be a difference between, say, the mind and the brain, for example, um, the mind being something more quantum based and non-local uh, in, and the brain being more of a neuroplastic facilitator of those, we could say, qubits, uh, quantum bits of information to then put in a linear order? I'm not sure. I, 
I guess I never thought about that. Oh, sure. I, yeah. I, I, again, I see the brain as as a machine, and and do we understand the biology of the brain? Sort of. Right. We understands. Uh, we we we've done imagery. It's all been done. So right. we understand the biology of the brain. We just don't understand what it does. We still right. don't understand why you dream. Mm. You know, what is what what is a dream? Uh, right. And it's not just something random. Like people kind of write dreams off and they say, well, they're just kind of random images in your head at night. Oh, no, they right. are not random images in your head. And then if we go back to our evolution question. Right. Your brain's not going to waste a bunch of energy after what do we say? 70 million. How long have we been on the planet? I don't even know what the number is. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, by this time, that should be if, if that was a waste of, of, of the energetic processes that should have been filtered out based on evolution. But somehow there's a reason that we dream. Mm. And again, they're, they're not just random images. They're not. And then right. some people, you know, they dream solutions to problems. Uh, some people dr dream, you know, things that are going on in their lives. Some people don't know why they're you know, dreaming a particular thing. But either way, we don't know why you dream. Okay, so that's the start, but then right. we don't know why you do a lot of things. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, th that's so well put. Would you say that? Um, have actually, a, this is a question that I genuinely don't know the answer to from a, a neuroscience perspective. Have there been genuine studies uh, into different uh, people's dreams and what have you, or not necessarily? Has it sort not of? That I know of not not a clinical. Uh, I there, right. there's nothing that I could use to. And I, I'm big on clinical research. Right. right. So, so I always look, I'm like, have you proved that? Now, have you actually proven that red wine is good for you? No. You know, and when you, just to clarify, things. when you say clinical research, you're talking about, say, literature and the peer-reviewed uh, journals and what have you. Yes. As right. far as, you know, you know, there's people talk a lot about dreams, but I think it's, again, one of these, these interfaces that can only be understood by a human brain. And our brain is protecting us from understanding that that's mm. kind of where I am with that. What do you find for, uh, have there been, uh, again, another question, have there been clinical studies um, pertaining to the impacts of psychedelics on individuals? And I ask this because if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, there have allegedly been studies to what degree I don't know, but where people have said, the, the test subjects have come out and said to the to the doctors doing, you know, observing them, saying you don't understand the the quote unquote dream was more real than anything here. Well, I don't know about that, but they're running clinical studies in San Francisco. Right. And what they're seeing with people who have, I don't know, stage four clinical depression, whatever that is, the, sure. the, the highest form of depression that can't be cured. Uh, as long as the people have the psychedelic experience, uh, their depression is being cured. So they're, they're, they're seeing amazing results uh, with people who haven't responded to antidepressants and therapy with psychedelics. And so that's why you know, I have become interested in psychedelics is the scientific validity of the clinical testing that's going on and actually doing placebo controlled studies where depression is being cured. Now, how's this working? Good question. Mm. Yeah. What right. is it about the psychedelic experience that cures people's depression? 
Are there by chance, if you happen to be familiar with, are there any particular chemicals within the psychedelics themselves that seem to, and please tell me if I'm not making any sense here, because this is not necessarily my field, but attach themselves to certain elements or receptors of the brain that induce more of a stimulated, you know, happy effect? I haven't seen what the, for psilocybin, for sure. instance, you know, which is the active ingredient in, in, in mushrooms. I, I haven't actually seen what people think they actually do. Mm. You know, I, you'd have to kind of read that in the literature. I, I haven't paid a lot of attention to it. Right. Okay. I, do know, I do know that that finally we're looking into psychedelics, uh, specifically psilocybin, uh, because it seems that psilocybin doesn't have, uh, there's, you know, I don't know about LSD and, and, and kind of all these other things. I'm a little scared of it. You know, anything that somebody's synthesizing, you don't know. You, you, right. Be careful. be careful with it. Right. But um, you know, what they're seeing, again, are, are, are pretty good clinical results um, with depression. Uh, but again, you do have to undergo this psychedelic experience. So it's just not a, a little microdose. Of, uh, right. And the, the, the clinical results with respects to control placebo testing and what have you, do they they far outweigh the results that have been shown uh, with respects to antidepressants or serotonin reuptake inhibitors or what have you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But these are people that haven't responded to therapy and, and antidepressants. Right. So they're right. The you know, that's how they get into the trial, that they have no other hope. And if you've ever gone through depression, and I've gone through depression in the past, it's real. It's right. real. Right. You, know, you, 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 your something gets, gets, gets messed up, and you have to kind of bring yourself out of it. Right. right. And then if it's too bad, like, there are people that are so depressed that they'd really rather be dead. Right. You know, or rather, if, if you could give them the choice of being depressed or having one of their limbs cut off, they'd go cut my hand off. Right. I'd rather right. not. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a real thing. It really is. And I, I think when I was young, I didn't, I'm like, come on, be serious. But no, I believe it. Can I ask Mark, what got you into uh, neuro, uh, neuroscience in the first place a, a few decades back? I ask because I'm very compelled and uh, very appreciative of your, your, not just your books, but your perspective on all of this as well. Oh, it was purely, purely accidental. I think, oh, wow. you know, when I, first entered the pharmaceutical industry, I wound up on neuroscience programs. I was working at a, a big pharma on anxiety and depression. And that's when I started to also think about the placebo effect because we were thwarted and not thwarted. Is that the right word? Thwarted. We were thwarted a number of times by the placebo effect during our trials. Uh, so when people start clinical trials and they have something like anxiety or they have depression, they immediately uh, come down into their, their depression or anxiety. Why? Because, well, they're finally doing something about it. So if you, you even give them a sugar pill, a placebo, they will start to feel better. And there's a huge, a huge placebo effect with uh, things like depression and anxiety. Uh, but then there's also, you know, talking about this, kind of going off track here for a moment. There's also a huge placebo effect in a number other of other diseases. And I was working on ulcer medications at the time. I was one of the researchers on Zantac, if you've heard of Zantac. And so Zantac uh, had, we, we would do placebo controlled trials uh, for curing ulcers. And 65% of the people would have their ulcers cured without Zantac. Yes. Zantac was probably, I think, if I remember correctly, it was 77%. So there was a, there was definitely a clinical benefit. Right, right. But for the people that had their ulcers cured um, just by placebo because they thought they were taking a medication. Right. Now, 
what does and they were like well that's just in your mind Did that's that, not a good that's not a good what the hell kind of scientific explanation is that it's just right. in your mind so what now really happening right and to that point it, would i be making a leap and saying here that this would directly imply uh are given arbitrarily but still there may be a, a very strong scientific basis to the concept of belief in and of itself oh, right but now you have to go into okay uh, you have to take it the next step and you say well there's belief but then what are the scientific manifest manifestations of that belief are you physically changing the molecular structure through your scientific belief are you making your is your brain actually uh a drug manufacturer and now making something that's a pharmacological molecule that's that's taking the place of Zantac or is it manufacturing some the uh, endogenous Zantac so you have wow. to take it as a scientist you have to take it the next step right you right know, this feeling is doing something and there's a physical manifestation of it okay now what is it Right. And it's interesting that when we take that approach in the way that you've just described, which seems to be the very much more oriented towards the scientific model in general than any other way, it seems quite interesting to me, perhaps even slightly, uh, uh, dare I say, appalling that there hasn't been more of an inquiry into into such. Now, maybe there has been and I'm just I haven't seen it. But to the point in which what you where you had said some time ago, where six, if I'm not mistaken, 65 percent of the test subjects were get feeling better just based off of the concept of belief and they weren't even taking a an actual treated medication in that right. regard right. that's yeah that that's very very uh i mean my, mind-blowing to me at least to say the least uh, to say the least well i mean I, I give the pharmaceutical industry credit they they, they do run placebo controlled trials and you have to prove a difference between placebo and your drug and we've cured a lot of diseases in the pharmaceutical industry a lot really so give them their due they they run good studies you know this is how i've you know spent my life and we're doing the best we can and part of it again part of it is to make sure that you know you can provide a benefit that wouldn't be pro provided if well you had a better exercise program i guess something like that right right well mark sir i want to thank you so immensely for coming on and it's been a, an absolute blast if you could please let my audience know where and how you could be found whether it's uh, your books or your your uh, cl clinical work or otherwise by all means well i can be found for my clinical for my clinical work and, and kind of braced in the pharmaceutical industry you can find me on linkedin I like to keep that separate, though, from the, the books and the author's uh, stuff. So uh, I have a series of time travel novels. That, like I said, uh, Matt Miller and the Colonies. Uh, these are available on uh, Amazon. Uh, also, there's audiobooks on Audible, uh, the Matt Miller and the Colony series. You can go to my website. It's markjroseauthor.com, markjroseauthor.com. That's sort of a portal to get to the books, uh, get the Instagram, get the Facebook. And then I also, you can sign up for a newsletter uh, if you want, where I talk a little bit more about, and then I have a blog as well on the website where I talk a little bit more about the kind of things, Dave, that, that we're discussing right now, right? Wow, incre that's incredible. That's incredible. And I, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And I think that we can definitely have a, a more conversations to add to this and from this uh, down the road. And and um, I'm, I'm so immensely grateful for this man, because I've been wanting to have a uh, specifically a neuroscientist on for quite some time now. And now that you've come on, I think it's been the the perfect fit. So thank you immensely.
So this has been the funnest interview I had, right? Because I, I I appreciate the questions. Uh, usually the questions are a little more practical and oh, what do you, how did you get your ideas for your books and right, right. stuff like that. And I'm not making fun of that. I'm not. And they're, they're good questions as well. But I, I really needed a conversation where we talked a little bit about the universe and quant the quantum world. And, you know, I, probably I one of my kind of challenges is to to explain my concept of God to other scientists. And, and that's right. something I'm still working on, but just kind of stuff like that is really cool to, to, to discuss. So I, I appreciate being on the show. Thank you so very much, sir. And, and to everyone else, we'll catch you all very, very soon, whether you're listening to this uh, on audio uh, or watching this via video. Thank you so much, everybody.